Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come to your word now, that you would uh, speak to us through it. Uh, we pray that uh, you would help us to appreciate, that you would open our spiritual eyes, uh, that we would appreciate more and more what you have done for us in Christ, uh, and uh, that, that we would respond to you properly. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you experienced the resurrection power of God? Have you experienced the resurrection power of God? What would you say to someone who asked you that question? What would you point to in your life to, as evidence of that? Or what, was, what would the reason be that you haven't had that experience? Have you experienced the resurrection power of God? In our passage today, we're going to see what it means to experience God's resurrection power. Now, before we do that, let me just briefly um, get you up to date, really, where, 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 uh, where, where this passage comes from in, in Ephesians. Uh, just to paint the context for you, uh, so, that we, so, so that we're reading it properly. Now, in Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul has been expounding the riches of the grace that God has given us in Jesus Christ. God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, he says. Those who are in Christ have been chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Adopted as God's sons, redeemed, bought with a price, the sacrificial death of Jesus. Forgiven of all our sins. Given, let into the secret of life that, that God's plan is to sum up everything in Christ. Given the Spirit as a seal, the first installment, guaranteeing our inheritance that we will have in Christ at the end of the age. And having received all these blessings, well, we received all these blessings when we were included in Christ. When we were united with Him by faith. And we were included in Christ when we heard the word of the truth, gospel of salvation, and believed it. And that is a cause of great thanksgiving. And so the whole of our lives are meant to be lived to the praise of the glory of him who did all that for us. Now that was the case for the people that Paul was writing to in this letter. They were genuine believers. It was true of them. And the reason he knows that is in verse 15. It says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, the saints are all God's people, I do not cease to give thanks for you. See, Paul knew they were real believers, that all these things in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, were true of them because of their faith in Christ and their love for the people of God. They truly trusted in Jesus' death on the cross to save them and relied on him as their king, and they really loved and cared for each other. Genuine Christians are marked by faith in God and love for the saints. And so Paul rejoiced when he saw this in them. He gave thanks to God because he knew that all those things that we just talked about were true of them. And in the midst of the thanksgiving, he prays that they too would realize just what a good deal that they had received. He prays in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. That is, the wisdom and revelation that come from knowing God will be 
characteristic of their spiritual life. That they will see things clearly from a spiritual perspective. That their spiritual eyes would be enlightened. And as their spiritual eyes were enlightened, they would see things. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know, one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Two, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the, what is the immeasurably greatness, what is it, sorry, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? <coughs> Those first two things deal with the future. The first one is the hope to which he has called us. Now, we talk about hope and we say, you know, hope is something that we're not sure is going to happen, but we, you would like it to happen. All right? This morning you woke up and said, I hope it's not going to rain this evening. And well, look what happened. All right? It's something that's uncertain. But when the, word, when the Bible uses the word hope, it uses it differently. It's not a vague wish, but it's actually something that you look forward to. It's a confident expectation of something good that will happen in the future. And in particular, it's talking about the future that will happen when Christ comes again in glory. And Paul wants us to know, what is that hope? What is the certainty? What is the future to which we've been called? So that we don't just live for the here and now, but we live for that. And so he prays in verse 18, that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened, that you may know what is this hope. And that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. <coughs> he wants us to know what God has in store for us. Not just individually at the end. Not just in an individual new heaven and new earth for ourselves. No, no, no. It's with the saints, with all God's people. You see, God has a future for us far better than we can imagine or we can describe. To bring us into that perfect, deep, and ultimately satisfying relationship with himself and with each other that will last forever. Unmarred by sin, in an environment unmarred by sin, in a body unmarred by sin. God is our loving Father and together as his redeemed people. Paul prays that God would open our spiritual eyes. So we would know that hope to which we have been called and the glorious inheritance that we have together in the saints, with the saints. Now those are the two bits of Paul's prayer that deal with the future and both things that we cannot see except with the eyes of faith. And the third thing, is the main point of what we're looking at today, is also something we cannot see except with the spiritual eyes of faith. That's there in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power to warn us who believe? Paul wants us to know, to see, to realize the greatness of God's power that is at work in us. See, God doesn't just call us to a hope, not just a certainty in the future, but his power is at work among us here and now. And this is resurrection power. This is the most powerful thing in the universe. I'll read from verse 19 again. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? What kind of power? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who dwells all in all. See, that power that is at work in the believer, that is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That's pretty awesome power, isn't it? Jesus was dead. He's a lifeless corpse. And the power of God raised him to life. But that's not all. Not only was he raised to life, but he was seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Given the right to rule not only the the physical universe, but every spiritual being as well. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and might. Not only in this present age, but in the age to come. So from being dead, God brought him alive, made him the most powerful being in the whole universe, forever. He's the one under whose feet God has placed all things. Tremendous power that takes him from being dead to being master of the universe. That's resurrection power. And the Bible says that power is at work in those who believe. Do you know that power in your life? Because if we are believers, then we have experienced that same kind of transformation that Jesus did. The uh, picture on the screen. We're going to have. We're going to see what we were like before on the left-hand side in A, and what we are like after this power has has worked in us in B. It's the power of God that has taken us from one side to the other. First few verses of Ephesians 2, Paul tells us what we were like before we were transformed by the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Remember, Jesus was physically dead, but we were spiritually dead. Our relationship with God was zero. The Malays would say, the Lord I am. We were completely out of touch with him. Unable to please him. Unable to relate to him properly. Unable to enjoy his life. Spiritually dead. Sure, physically we were alive. We had thoughts and feelings and you know all other signs of life. But as far as God is concerned, we were the living dead. No spiritual life and nothing we could do about it. We were dead in sin. And not only were we dead in sin... But whether we liked it or not, and whether we realized it or not, we were followers of the world and of the devil himself. Verse 2. In which you walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. See, it's not just Satanists who follow Satan. I mean, they do that openly. But all of us join him in his rebellion against God. And that's what sin is, rebelling against God, failing to treat him properly. It's living our life, our way, instead of God's way. And that's the way the world lives. Living as if we were more important than God. And that's the way the devil lives. We were led astray by him in his evil trickery and deceit. And whenever people choose not to submit to Jesus, who was God's appointed Lord and King, then they are doing exactly what Satan wants. And we were all like that. 
Now, most of us did it unwittingly. Most of us, you know, very decent people as far as the world goes, not at all satanic and, you know, like killing goats and stuff like that and satanic rituals. And but we weren't living for Jesus. Some of us did it religiously. Instead of worshipping God, our true creator, we worshipping spirits and images and idols or, 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 or idols create, that are made of, 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 uh, of, of wood and stone and gold or, or created by the imagination of false prophets. Uh, some of us did it materialistically. Instead of serving God, we served ourselves, our careers, our friends, our families. Our some of us did it hypocritically. Born in Christian families, went through all the outward motions, but, but never served God and never followed him from the heart. Followed the ways of the world and the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And thirdly, our lives were controlled by the flesh, that is, our sinful natures. Verse 3. Among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Instead of living for God, we live for ourselves to satisfy our own cravings, our own desires, our own thoughts. And, and that was our nature. That's, that's who we were. We were sinners, the Bible says, like, like everyone else. Because every human being after Adam and Eve were born in sin. We've been sinful from the start and we follow our own ways and we rebel against God. And, and that's our makeup. That's our nature. And so we read at the end of verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Because of what we are, inherently sinful, and because we put that sinful nature into practice every day, we inherently deserve God's condemnation. Dead in our sin, followers of the world and the devil, controlled by the flesh, children of wrath. That's not a very pretty picture, is it? Now that may not be how we saw ourselves, that may not be how other people saw us, but that's how God saw us. And that's how we really were. Hopeless, helpless, rebellious, and condemned. And unable to do anything about it. But brothers and sisters, praise be to God, he did not leave it there. Verse 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God acted because of his great love for us. Not because he had to, not because we were good, not because we deserved it, but because he is rich in mercy and he loved us. And in his love, God did the impossible. He make us, the living dead, alive in Christ. The same resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead, raised us as well. God made us alive in Christ. And so we who are in Christ have a relationship with him. We are able to know God as our Father. We are able to know Jesus as Lord. We are, able to give, we are given the Holy Spirit who, from whom this life comes. We have a spiritual life that's not just a product of our imaginations. We are alive with Christ. And we did nothing to earn or deserve it. 
That's why Paul adds this to the end of verse 5. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. The word grace means God's unmerited favor. It means God treating us far, far better than we could deserve. Paul says we've been saved, we've been moved by grace. And it had to be by grace, isn't it? Because we were not sick, we were dead. Sick people can call a doctor. Sick people can take their medicine. A sick people can do their bit to help themselves get better. But dead people can do nothing at all. It would take a miracle for them to get up. A miracle they can't even help with. See, if it wasn't by grace, if it was some help was needed from us, then it would never have happened. But praise God, we were saved by grace. We were rescued from being dead in sin. God did the impossible. He made us, the walking dead, alive with Christ. So Jesus was dead and by God's power he made him alive. And we were dead. By God's power he's made us alive with Christ. The very power of God that was at work in Jesus Christ is at work in us who believe. Those of you who are with us on Good Friday may recall how we talked about how God united us with Christ when we have faith in him. The, and the illustration we used was is like we have joint accounts with Christ. It's all we share all our spiritual assets and liabilities and our sin became his sin and he, he paid for it on the cross and his righteousness became our righteousness and, and God counts us as righteous in him. And the thoughts of Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, we, when we believe we were given every spiritual blessing in Christ, in our union with Christ, because every blessing belongs to him. Well, here it is again. In our union with Christ, we participated spiritually in his resurrection. Now, of course, we've got our own physical resurrection to look forward to, but because of him, spiritually, we, we've already been raised. God, we were dead. God made us alive in Christ. But remember, Jesus didn't just rise. We, we saw earlier how God, by his great power, not only raised him, but, but seated him in his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and, and power and dominion and might. And friends, our union with Christ was not only in his resurrection, but in his exaltation as well. Look at verse 6 of chapter 2. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God gave us a place with him in glory. And that's where we belong. Physically, we're in the multi-purpose hall, St. Mary's Cathedral, Datara Medeca. Spiritually, we are already with Christ in heaven, reigning with him. That is our position. Now, if we are seated with Christ, then, then we are no longer under the rulers of this world. We are no longer under Satan, under any spiritual power anymore. How can it be? We are seated with the one who is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and might in this age and in the age to come. So we don't need to follow them anymore. They're not our master. We don't need to obey them anymore. And we do not need to be afraid of them anymore. We do not need to please them anymore. It doesn't matter if strange things happen. We're above all that. We 
we participate not only in the resurrection of Christ, but in his exaltation far above all the forces of evil. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? But you know, friends, what we've understood is just the tip of the iceberg. The enormity of God's grace, that's, that's beyond us. We still don't realize how badly off we were when we were dead in sin. We still don't realize how much God has really blessed us in Christ. We still haven't plumbed the depth of what it cost God, the extent of the sacrifice on the cross that made it possible for him to move us. But brothers and sisters, in the coming ages, we will begin to see more and more the incredible riches of God's grace to us in Christ, beyond our imagining in this world. And yet in eternity, we'll see them in its fullness. Appreciate more and more the incredible wealth of the grace of God that he showered on us. Verse 7 tells us that God ordered all this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So we and all God's people, his saints, will enjoy that inheritance that we've been given. For all eternity, appreciate more and more the riches of God's grace. Realize how mind-blowingly kind he has been towards us in Jesus Christ. And we will be the forever living evidence that God is kind and gracious and generous and good. Forever living to the praise of his glorious grace. Once we were dead in sin, now we are alive in Christ. Once we were followers of the devil and controlled by the flesh, now we are seated with Christ in heaven. Once we were children of wrath, now we are recipients of eternal grace. Have you experienced God's power? Has God moved you from A to B? Have you experienced that power? Andrew, you might say, how do I know if I've experienced God's power? How do I know if I've, I've been raised from the dead and exalted with Christ? Is it, is it by my feelings and emotions? I mean, am I meant to feel different? When I, when I experience God's power, is it, is it like electric power? And if I take this off and get electric power, I feel shocked. Right? Or it's like solar power. It makes you all warm and, and happy. Unless you're too hot, then you get ready. You know? Or is it like the power of a good song or a poem that makes me feel inspired or touched? Or, or is it like the power of x-rays? Very powerful, but don't feel anything at all. What feelings are you meant to feel with it when you experience the power of God? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything, does it? Because that's complete irrelevance. It's not about how you feel or don't feel. We can feel something or we can feel nothing. And it probably depends more on our own temperament than anything else. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have feelings. Of course we should have feelings. That's a good thing. But what we mustn't confuse our feelings with the power of God. 
What we feel is our own emotional response to what God has done. And that's a legitimate thing. It's a good thing. Nothing wrong with having an emotional experience. It's good to feel deeply about God. But since we're all emotionally different, we're going to have all different emotional responses. And we mustn't confuse our emotions with the power of God itself. And mustn't try to manufacture the emotions thinking that by doing so we've experienced the power of God. We don't feel the power of God. Because we don't feel, we don't experience the power of God by feeling. Experience the power of God by faith. If we trust in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, then we know that by faith that God's power has been at work in us. He's made us alive and seated us with Him in heaven. God's power is at work in us no matter how we feel. We've experienced the power of God. That's a great miracle. Second mistake sometimes people make in thinking about the power of God is that that it is primarily seen in healings or, or other miracles like that. Now, again, I believe that God heals people, and it's fantastic when he does. Praise the Lord. But that's just a little thing. It's a tiny thing compared with this great thing that we've been talking about today, the, 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 the resurrection power that brings someone from death to life, isn't it? Get into perspective. That you can, you can see and you can experience all kinds of those little ones and yet still be on side A in that, in that, in that equation. You can still be someone who hasn't experienced that great resurrection miracle that you really need. That's the important one. Uh, when I first came to this cathedral about five years ago, just before Smack started, um, there was a mission conducted here by a godly old Canadian man, an evangelist called Marnie Patterson. Uh, I don't know if anyone here knows him, but he would stand there and faithfully proclaim the gospel, nothing else. And people would hear and be saved. That was fantastic. I remember being up in the car park. I met uh, uh, someone who used to come to the, the services of the cathedral, and he was here for something else to pick up something and said, Hey, what are you? I said, Come, come, come here, Money Patterson, preach the gospel. And he said, Oh, I can't come today, but maybe I'll come tomorrow. But are there any miracles? Any miracles? I said, friend, every night people are coming to know the Lord Jesus. That's, that's the greatest miracle of all, isn't it? And he laughed, but he wasn't impressed. If there were miracles, then you'll come and see. But if the gospel is preached and people respond, then... It's just so typical of people, isn't it? And if someone's hand is chopped off and it grows back, wow, very impressed. Like someone's dead... And God brings them to life again. Well, yeah, that's just what happens, really. See, if you think there were no miracles at the Marnie Patterson mission, then you do not know the incredible great power that is at work in those who believe. If someone's going from death to life, from a slave of Satan to a child of God, from an object of wrath to a recipient of grace, is not a miracle, then what's a miracle? If only we had spiritual eyes to see. Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That we would recognize this incredible great power in those who believe. Have you experienced the resurrection power of God? If you trust in Jesus, the answer has to be yes. 
But what if you don't know? What if you don't know if you've experienced the resurrection power? In terms of that diagram we had before, what if you're still on side A? You want to be in B? What do you got to do? Well, it's not a question of trying harder, is it? It's not a question of being more and more moral, being more religious, more pious, doing more rituals. In fact, it's not a matter of what I can do. It's, I can do nothing to move myself from that A to B. I don't have that power in myself. I'm entirely helpless. <coughs> How does a change come? Well, the Bible tells us that change is a gift from God. A gift, verse 8 and 9. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. Now we've already said that grace means unmerited favor. Being treated far, far better than we deserve. The Bible says that it is by grace you have been saved. So being saved, being moved from A to B is not something that we can deserve, not something we can earn. It's an act of God's kindness, His generosity. And the second key word is the word there, faith. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. Faith is trusting someone, relying on them. And so faith here is trusting Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. And so in verse 8 and 9, where it's by grace, it is God's kindness, God's unmerited favor that you've been saved through faith, through trusting in Jesus. It's not, it's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. God's power does it, not us. It's received by faith. God offers it as a gift, based on the death of his son on our behalf, that we receive by simply trusting him. Not by doing good things. Again, not belittling good things. Good works are, by by definition, good to do, but they don't get us right with God. They don't make us go from being dead to being alive. They don't raise up to heaven now, so they won't help us get there when we die. That's the big difference between biblical Christianity and every other religion. Because religions tell you you have to do this and this and this and this in order to be saved. You know, pray five times a day, go to the temple, go to the mosque, go to the church, participate in the rituals, fast for a period of time, live a life that is moral, do the... And when it's all said and done, perhaps the good will outweigh the bad. Perhaps God will accept you. But biblical Christianity says no. God says, you cannot come to me by doing. It is not by works. Our good works have nothing to do with us experiencing God's power. Have nothing to do with us being saved. Whether we are baptized or confirmed or go to church on Sundays or go to Bible study or pray or, or give money for ministry or help the poor or care for our neighbors, evangelize the lost, set up chairs, pack up the room, help in the creche, none of those things contribute to our salvation. If they did, it would spoil grace, wouldn't it? If they did, when we get our inheritance in the end, we'll, we could boast about us. Hey, you know, I did this and this and this, and, and here I am. And, and that would take the glory away from God for our salvation. We are saved by grace. And we receive it by faith alone, simply by trusting God for it. 
And the moment that we say that our good works help us get that salvation, we've spoiled the whole thing. So let's make no mistake. Works do not lead to salvation. Wrong. Furthermore, faith plus works doesn't lead to salvation. That's also wrong because if we add works in order to be saved, either we were not really spiritually dead or Jesus' death on the cross wasn't enough. We have to add something to it. We need to help him a bit. And God has robbed of the glory. Correct equation. We're saved by grace through faith. Apart from works. The gift of God. So no one can boast. God's power changes us when we trust him. And that's it. Now it doesn't mean that good works don't have a place. God raises from the dead and seated him with Christ in the heavenly places by his great power so that we could do good works. We see that in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. See, our change status leads to a change in our living. So we can add works to that equation uh, as a result of grace and faith and salvation. If we are, so if you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, then you can get baptized. Because that's a good work that God has prepared for you to do, even though it doesn't contribute to your salvation. If you're a Christian and you don't do anything for the poor, then do something. The least you can do is be generous with your money, even though that's not going to help you win your salvation. If you're a Christian, you're not involved with local church, then get involved. Make a commitment to be a part of the gathering of God's people and to serve, even though that's not going to save you. All good works, good things that God's prepared for us to do, must do them because that's what we're created for, that's what we're saved for. And but now we can do them for the right reasons. Love for God, gratefulness for his grace that he, is, that he has given us. God saved us that we would be his people and express it in the way we live. And so, the right equation has got a bit more in it than we saw on the previous side. Grace through faith leads to salvation and it also leads to works. If we are truly Christian, if we are truly saved, if we truly have faith, then, then we will start walking, we will start living this way. That's how Paul knew the, the Ephesians were true Christians. They had faith in God and Love for the saints. But we mustn't get the cart before the horse. Good works are the product of salvation. They are the evidence of salvation. They are the result of salvation. When God's power has raised you from the dead, you will see evidence in the way you live. But they don't help you get salvation. Don't cause God's power to work in you, to raise you with Christ. It's by the grace of God. So friends, in conclusion, let me ask you again. Have you experienced the power of God? Have you experienced that grace of God? We are all dead, but have you been made alive? Have you been seated with Christ in the heavenly places? Has the power that raised Jesus from the dead been at work in you? Have you put your trust in Jesus and him alone for your salvation? Not your feelings, not your works, not your religion, not your goodness, not your anything, but his death on the cross for you. Because when we trust in him, 
because of his grace. His great power works in us. Raise us from being dead to sin. Making us alive. Sitting us with God. Great power is at work in those who believe. If you've never expressed your trust in Jesus, if you've never put it there, and you want to do that tonight, I'll just give you a bit of quiet time now to talk to God about that. To ask Jesus to be your saviour, to be the one whose death takes away your sin, and be your Lord and your boss in your life, and to work his great power in you. Raise you from being dead to sin. Put you to being with him. That's something that you've already done and God has already worked that power, then well, why don't you spend this time to thank God for the grace he's shown you and the power that's at work in you. And you might want to join Paul in praying that uh, we'd all realize the greatness of that power in us. Let's take a few moments of silence to, to pray to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for that resurrection power that is at work in those who believe. We thank you that by that great power you have raised us from being dead to sin and alive to you. Just like you raised Jesus. Thank you that you have seated us with him in heavenly places far above all rule and authority. Thank you that through him we have that Resurrection life, a relationship with you that, that lasts forever. Our oh, Father, we pray that for each one of us here, our spiritual eyes will be opened. That we would see very clearly the hope that we have in Christ, glorious inheritance we have together with all the saints. And the, and the immeasurable great power that is at work in those who believe. And help us to be people who trust in Jesus, who rely on, on your grace. We don't seek to try and make ourselves right with you or try to perform so that you will accept us but trust completely in what Jesus has done on the cross for us, knowing that it is your power, not ours, that has raised us and made us right with you. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that more and more we would, we would realize the immeasurable richness of the grace that you have shown us in Christ, and that for all eternity uh, we will marvel at the wonderful things that you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, now. In Jesus' name. Amen.